Hello there. I'm Aaron Martell. I'm Ray Zimmer. I'm Mike Cordes. And I'm Lou Figaro. And welcome to Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews, a podcast where we talk about and review a rock album of our choice. This episode, we are joined by a first-time guest co-pilot and R4 Patreon legend, Kayla Helsel. Kayla, welcome to the R4 Podcast. Happy to be here. All right, great. So in this episode, we're going to review David Bowie's 1973 album, Aladdin Sane. So Kayla, you're our guest, so we'll start with you. How did you get into Bowie and this particular album? Okay, well, I would hope that everybody knows who Bowie is, but... So my dad loves classic rock, so that's what I grew up on. And we used to have, like, a top 500 Rolling Stones, like, playlist always playing in the car. So, like, Bowie would always, like, pop up on that. And then, um, weirdly, so the day before David Bowie actually passed, I was, like, on YouTube. And, you know, you know like, I knew, like, all the hits, but I've never really took, like, a deep dive into all of his stuff. And then that day, like, I was just, like, listening to all kinds of stuff I never listened to. And the next day, my dad called me, and he was like, did you hear the David Bowie pass? And I was, like, shocked. And, like, it just really hit hard. And ever since, like, I just deep dove. Like, I got a dog. I named him after David Bowie. His name is Ziggy. And <laughs> nice. I had a really hard time, like, picking which Bowie album to do because I want to do the Ziggy Stardust one, but you guys already did that. But, you know, there's not, like, a bad Bowie album, so can't go wrong. And, you know. It's one of like his beginning albums, so. Ray, what do you say? Well, I mean, I'm kind of late to the Bowie game. I didn't start really investigating. I mean, I knew the stuff that was on the radio, and I liked it just fine, you know. But I, I never like really delved deep into his stuff, and there was like a resurgence of popularity of his in the '90s, and it, that kind of turned me off to him because it was like, you know, I don't know, it was just all the pricks that I knew, and like, oh, fucking Bowie, this Bowie, that. Like, yeah, shut up. But um. Like around 2019, I was like, all right, I'm going to see what all the hullabaloo is about because I'm at that stage of my life where I use words like hullabaloo. Um, <laughs> and I was like, I'm going to see what this, this god farting thing is all about. So I did. I started a deep dive and I started out with Diamond Dogs and, uh, of course, Black Star. And this was like the third Bowie album that I listened to as part of what I call my Bowie scholarship course. So, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's kind of it's about 2019. All right. Mike, uh, so I actually I have I have no idea when I got into Bowie. Um, I think we touched on it a little bit with uh, Ziggy Stardust, but I somebody a neighbor gave me a record collection, and David Live was in there. You know, part of the whole Thin White Duke era, and I got it, and I actually traded it away, and which I'm kicking myself in the ass for now. But I would say it was probably within the past ten years. Same thing as Ray just you know needed to needed to dive in with bowie because so many people had such a huge amount of affection for the man so ziggy stardust started it and i've been slowly filling in the catalog since all right low i've been a casual bowie fan since like diamond dogs came out i was i was a little kid when my uncle got it uh i always liked the uh, at the beginning of that record <laughs> It, it stuck with me and it was one of the records that I wound up like buying myself and it's held up over the years. Those Dynaflex records are awesome. I still go back to it every so often. I mean, what seven-year-old kid wouldn't want an album with a guy with dog legs? I mean, hey. <laughs> um, my uncle also had Aladdin Sane, but I didn't really listen to that until I got David Live for Christmas one year. And there were a few songs from that record on David Live, which made me kind of 
seek out the studio versions. The cover was something that stuck with me. Uh, what's not to like a freaky looking, no eye, eyebrows, white dude, lightning bolt on his face. I mean, <laughs> sign me up. <laughs> <laughs> so this is our third go around on the podcast with Bowie. And like I've said previously, I became interested in him when Let's Dance became popular on the radio in 1983. And then years later, I got a greatest hit CD of his in which I just dug every single track on it. it just made me want to explore the Bowie catalog. So using my handy-dandy Rolling Stone record guide as a cheat sheet, I started collecting the Bowie albums on CD, and Aladdin Sane must have been early on in the hunt because I know it got a good rating in the Rolling Stone guide, so it was definitely the early 90s when I got this and listened to it for the first time. Now I'll give you some basic facts about this record, pulled from its Wikipedia entry, so make of that what you will. Aladdin Sane is the sixth studio album by English musician David Bowie, released on April 13, 1973 on RCA Records. It was produced by Ken Scott and David Bowie and was recorded on October 6, 1972, as well as from December 1972 to January 1973 at Trident Studios, London, England, and RCA Studios, New York City, New York. It reached number one on the UK Albums Chart, and number 17 on the U.S. Billboard Top LPs and Tape Chart, and is certified platinum by the BPI and gold by the RIAA. And here's the musician's lineup card. We have David Bowie on vocals, guitar, harmonica, saxophone, synthesizer, and Mellotron. Mick Ronson on guitar, piano, and vocals. Trevor Boulder on bass guitar. Mick Woody Woodmansey on drums, Mike Garson on piano, Ken Fordham on saxophone, Brian Bucks Wilshaw on saxophone and flutes, Juanita Honey Franklin on backing vocals, Linda Lewis on backing vocals, and G.A. McCormick on backing vocals. All right, let's head on over into a track by track analysis of this album. Kicking the record off is Watch That Man, written by David Bowie. Kayla, what do you think? Um, honestly, throughout the album, I know there's like a ton of piano and saxophone, and I just love how the whole thing flows. Like I can listen to it to beginning and no problem, and just like, it just flies by. But I like how it first starts off. Just it just starts off really great, and just I just doesn't let you down from there, to be honest. So that's that's what I got to say. Okay, Ray. Well, this one has the Rolling Stones like written all over it, right down to the background singers. I mean, this could have been on Exile and Main Street or Sticky Fingers, as far as I'm concerned. It's kind of got that great loose jam feel. And really, I think the Spiders and Mars could have probably been a great blues rock band on their own right without Bowie. But um, just having him on there was like the definite like icing on the cake. Garson is ripping it up like the love child of Little Richard and Nicky Hopkins. Another Stones reference there. And we'll see later on how much of a great asset he was to this whole group. 
One of the things I noticed is I can kind of hear some things vocally that I hear Robert Smith doing later on in The Cure. And I know that he was like a boy nut swinger, like way back, right up to low. And I guess that's when he stopped listening to him. But like little certain vocal patterns I can hear that Smith definitely nicked from Bowie on this. I think Rono's great on anything, really. I mean, he's equally competent on a rhythm guitarist as he is on lead. I mean, ideally, a guitarist should be able to do both, but sometimes they just can't. I mean, I've heard guys that can rip up some tasty leads, but their rhythm playing is super dull and just not that interesting. Um, that was the cool thing about Rono. He could play like Keith Richards and Clapton at the same time. So I agree 100%. In Fred Durst terms, I'm in agreement uh, with Kayla on this. And um, yeah, this is a great way to open the album. Rock and Mike. So really, we got a glammed up blues riff complete with Rocky Horror backing vocals and some honky tonk piano. And I don't know why, but anytime that that backing vocal comes in to watch that man, I just think Rocky Horror Picture Show. So I go <laughs> straight straight there. But Ray, you and I are on the same page because with it's a it's a kind of a raunchier, sloppier sound than Ziggy Stardust. It's almost like the New York Dolls filtered through the Stones. And I know that was something that he kind of was trying for he was trying for a, a more of a stone sounding album but he did it while maintaining his own identity and really adding something to the sound so i i really that's one of the things that really hits me first off and even though musically the honky tonk piano the blues riff those backing vocals you've heard it all before but it it's bowie so he finds a way to make it sound fresh and i it's one of the things i love about him low i always thought there was something off about the beginning though the drums are missing. Like, you know, he wasn't finished doing his, his line of blow or whatever while the rest of the band like <laughs> ran out and, you know, picked up their instruments. It's like, I, 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 I. <laughs> um, but then he catches up a few bars later and all is right in the world. It's sci-fi doo-wop. It's rough. It's out of tune. It's outrageous, but it works. It serves as an intro to this rock and roll tranny burlesque show. <laughs> <laughs> right you know it's attitude yep. comes straight out of rocky horror playbook it's it, i see where they got it from it's it's brilliant uh, the, the breakdown at the end is cool too it's like they could have just kept repeating and fade out to the end but it, it got even sleazier through that long slow fade out it, it's cool good track to start it out so I read that the inspiration for this song was two concerts by the New York Dolls in New York City that Bowie saw. And you can certainly hear that influence as well as the ballsy roots rock that the Rolling Stones were doing at the time. We've all been saying this. We get loud, crunchy guitars from both Bowie and Mick Ronson, and Ronson's leads are appropriately raucous. Trevor Boulder's bass, it's melodic and kind of snakes around underneath all the racket. And longtime Bowie band member Mike Garson is pounding away on that piano, reminiscent of Nicky Hopkins' work with, with the Stones. I picked up on that, too. Garson's outstanding on this whole album. Mick Woody Woodmansey bashes the straightforward beat, so all the spiders from Mars are accounted for. And there's some cool as shit backing vocals from Linda Lewis, Juanita Honey Franklin, and G.A. McCormick. They bring a little soul to the Rowdy Rock Party. I didn't even pick up on that Rocky Horror vibes, but it's definitely there. Curiously, Bowie's lead vocals are buried in the mix. I could barely hear him without headphones. And this was done deliberately to keep the track raw and rocking. I read that when the album was turned in, RCA asked for a remix of this track. And so co-producer Ken Scott did a mix with Bowie's vocals more upfront. And when the label heard the new mix, they agreed it was best to go with the original. Yeah, that's, that sounds a lot better. So they did all that for nothing. 
I read that the lyrics were inspired by a wild hotel party in New York City on the Ziggy Stardust tour, and Bowie describes the goings-on at the all-night shindig with its sad music from an old-fashioned band, shimmering Lorraine, a Benny Goodman fan with holes painted in his hands, and everyone's drunk and coked up, while Bowie himself isn't all that impressed. It was so-so. He walks and talks like a jerk, but he's just taking care of the room. The song is full of surreal, evocative imagery. A year later, Bowie would kind of rewrite the music of this for the title track of Diamond Dogs, but this tune is aces as a bombastic opening cut. I'm with everybody here. Yeah, I think we have to say that the unsung hero of this band is definitely Trevor Boulder Sideburns. <laughs> they're they're just like you know they're monumental really you know there's just like something they should have the rock and roll hall of fame should just have like a one exhibit just dedicated to the man's sideburns <laughs> give neil young a run for his money oh fuck yeah the next track is the title track aladdin sane 1913 to 1938 to 1970 question mark written by david bowie Ray Z, lead us off. I think that this song is fucking amazing. A little bit of a backstory. David's half-brother Terry was older than him, and he had a big impact on his taste. I guess Terry introduced David to jazz and beat poetry. Unfortunately, the Burns family mental illness struggles affected Terry, and he was in and out of institutions after getting out of the Royal Air Force. David, there's a story that David said about taking his brother to go see a cream show. And on the way home, Terry had like a complete psychotic break and was convinced that some weird shit was going down beneath the earth. Like it was going to open up or lava was going to come out. That said, this song kind of vacillates between some beautiful jazz-like chord progressions and bonkers lunacy. The verse section really showcased Mike Garson's virtuoso capabilities on the piano. I mean, this guy was like, he was just a beast. He really was. I mean, I mean, I can't, I'm sure in the prog world, I'm sure there's other keyboardists who are like on par, maybe even better. But like, I think this guy just, this guy was amazing. Rano tastefully answers Bowie's vocal lines with single note melodies and sliding force that every once in a while. I think, I think that's really fucking cool. The chorus is where the mood changes. It goes into two chord vamp that modulates. In a way, it kind of reminds me of the kinks, where have all the good times gone? Bowie's vocal delivery is fragile yet beautiful in both parts of the song, in the verse and the chorus. The centerpiece, though, of this song for me is definitely Mike Carson's piano solo. It's rhythmically jarring and all over the place. I guess Bowie really pushed for him to go all out in the whole avant-garde passages. Like, he was playing for them, I guess, originally, and because they had heard that he was an avant-garde pianist. And he was doing just, you know, like, your typical rock stuff. And they're like, no, we want more of the avant-garde shit. And so he just, like, went balls to the wall and played the fucking solo that you get on the song. I mean, it kind of sounds mad corny. But it almost sounds like a sonic interpretation of whatever was going on in Terry Burns's head, a constant switch between like sophistication and then to sheer madness. <laughs> and I guess the only real thing I have to say is like I always chuckle at the end of this song because it's got that little piano fill that always reminds me of the old ad for speed stick deodorant. I always want to start going, bye menin. Every time it goes. <laughs> whenever when I ever hear that drinking towards the end. So yeah, this song is the fucking shit. Rock and Mike. So this is my favorite song on the entire record right here. And it's funny, Ray, because I literally wrote 
the first there's a lot here but first we have to acknowledge the beast on the song and that's mike garson he <laughs> he, he, he makes the song for me so much it's a loungy lyrically repetitive song it goes back and forth between something that easily could have killed the record and a perfect a perfect example of just bowie in general I love the avant-garde jazz feel throughout that piano section with Garson's. Um, I really think this song foreshadows the death of Ziggy Stardust and the birth of the Thin White Duke. It's almost, I, I'd interpret it like it was, uh, it was Ziggy's funeral dirge because it's going back and forth, right? The, you get the avant-garde jazz and that's, that's Ziggy. That's the, the craziness. And, and then all of a sudden you come back to the lounge and that's the Thin White Duke era and it goes back and forth. So that's, how I interpreted this song. I, I love the unholy hell. The, this song was on repeat all week. I love this one. Lou. This one starts off sounding like they should be wheeling him out on top of a piano with a red dress and a feather boa. <laughs> <laughs> you know, very adult sounding <laughs> nylons and whiskey and Robert Goulet kind of. <laughs> I just like the Rocky Horror. <laughs> yeah, just like Rocky Horror. Right. Yeah. Tinkling piano kind of drags you by the nose through this swirly, off-kilter, sultry number. It's very un-rock and roll. More Liberace Candelabra theater and less barhouse <laughs> rock band. But that's on this record, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I wish my brother George were here. I was just thinking that. I was only just thinking that. Coming, mother. (laughs) By the end, he's just banging on that fucking piano like two rabid mice having sweaty, frenetic rat sex on an old player piano. (laughs) Reminds me of Tom and Jerry, you know, with Tom going to hell and getting poked in the ass by the devil. (laughs) (laughs) I'll take my pill now. That cartoon scared the shit out of me when I was a kid. <laughs> me too. The big bulldog in hell. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Work. Freaky shit, man. Send him down. <laughs> <laughs> Kayla, what do you think of this? Honestly, this song used to really scare me, so I would always skip it, but eventually I actually gave it a chance. And honestly, all just the whole piano part was so intense, but I loved every second of it. So this is an odd, almost free jazz style track musically. It feels like all the instruments are playing different songs, like the individual parts shouldn't fit together. And then it all just comes together in this cacophony that just sounds cool. Bowie himself's on acoustic guitar, Ronson's on electric guitar, but the guitars are back in the mix and almost take supporting roles. Boulder's prominent, fretless bass is melodic and doing its own jazzy thing, and Woodmansey's drums are what grounds the whole track and prevents it from splintering off into space. Bowie also throws in some honking saxophone that acts like a counterpoint to the piano, almost like it's shouting, hey, piano, what the fuck are you doing? And now we got to talk about Garson's piano. It's the most important sonic component. It tinkles and glissandos in the verses and choruses. But when it gets to the solo, it goes off all over the places. Avant-garde as Garson can play it. It sounds like they let a three-year-old wang away at the keys. I think my German Shepherd could play it more in key. But it perfectly complements what Bowie's going for on the track. Like Razy said, Bowie wanted Garson to play it this way. He actually tried two different types of solos at first that Bowie just kind of rejected. He's like, no, no, that isn't, you know, that's not crazy enough. Go avant-garde. So he did this. 
Lyrically, the title plays on the phrase, A Lad Insane, and is about how young people behave all carefree and silly before the devastating effects of war are felt. It was inspired by the 1930 book, Vile Bodies, by Evelyn Waugh. <laughs> the dates in the song title reflect the last years before World War I, which is 1913, World War II, 1938, and what Bowie saw as the possibility of World War III occurring in the 1970s. This track is odd, experimental, dissonant, and cool as shit. The following track is Drive In Saturday, written by David Bowie. Mike, your thoughts. So we go from jazz to doo-wop, but one thing that Bowie does a lot is he takes any style he wants and he weaves it in a way, but it still keeps you immersed. Like we said on Watch That Man, it's everything you, you've heard this before. You just haven't heard Bowie do it this way. And that's one of the things that I truly love about David Bowie is his thumbprint is on everything, regardless of the style. I really like the doo-wop backing vocals and how he tops it with a, that sultry sax line. And really, for me, the, the sax line is what kind of pulls the listener along. So I'm, I'm on board on this one, too. Lou? Well, he's still got his foot firmly planted in stuff 20 years from then. So that what, what is that, the 50s? It's, yeah. it's weird to think about that now with bands doing that. You know, like bands doing grunge now would be more years ago than doo-wop was to Bowie in 74. It's just fucking mind-blowing. This song's probably got a way deeper meaning, which I'll leave to to everybody else. But uh, it's kind of one of my skippers on the record. I can't really put my finger on a concept or any kind of common theme other than that tranny porn house thing for this record so far. But I'm not complaining. <laughs> Kayla. Um, honestly, just like you guys were saying, like the doo-wop was a I was expecting it, but Sonder, he makes it sound good. And then honestly, he's just good at everything. <laughs> Ray, see, I actually like I can hear you can hear the '50s rock and roll influence on this song, and there's a couple others in this catalog that you can hear that on. But I honestly didn't know what this song was about until recently. I thought it was like a wistful look at '50s dating, sock cops, greasers, whatever. But now that I know what it's actually about, I think it's fucking hysterical. I don't think Bowie gets nearly as much credit for his sense of humor. All right, so check it out. Supposedly, it's a story. It's a, a post-apocalyptic story where people don't know how to fuck anymore. So what they do <laughs> is they base their information on how to do it by watching pornos. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's, his name was always Buddy. Was I guess uh, the porn <laughs> star, you know? And the song, and she slides like. I don't who Buddy was. But. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's like that. He, he like went off the grid as far as just like you know. Maybe some more of his intro, more introspective. It's, it's like just writing a story about people who forgot how to screw. And um, yeah, that's what it's all about. One of the things I think is really funny too is well, not really funny. Is interesting about the song. Is he the one who's playing sax on the song, or is one of the other two cats who are playing sax? Shit, I don't know. Oh, well, whoever's doing it. Like I was when I was at UMass, I took this class called the History of Jazz, and they went through like everything from early New Orleans style jazz right up to like seventies jazz fusion stuff. 
But back in like somewhere in the swing era, switching over more into like the bebop era, there was this dude named Johnny Hodges, who I think he played like an alto sax. And he was like known for playing like a lot of ballads. And he had this really syrupy, sweet vibrato. And you can hear that kind of like Johnny Hodges style vibrato on the sax. But when he this played in the context of this song, it sounds almost fucking comical. Because it's going along with the string section. And you hear... It's like, you know, somebody took Elvis Costello and turned it into a fucking saxophone line. Yeah, I, I always got a kick out of that. I thought it was fucking funny. See, I assumed it was Bowie. It is. I just looked it up. Oh, oh it is yeah, Bowie. Me okay. Yeah, me too. I just looked it up as yeah. well. <laughs> it's funny because, like, Niall Rogers, who produced the Let's Dance, and then he did Black Tie, White Noise. Like, and boy, I guess on Black Tie, White Noise, Bowie insisted on playing saxophone, much to Niall Rogers' chagrin. Niall Rogers <laughs> was like, I would never hire him to play a job somewhere. But... <laughs> What he did was passable for the song. I, it sounds kind of cartoony, but I think now that I, 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 this song is really endearing, especially now that I know the storyline behind it, I think it makes it that much more endearing. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm all good with Drive-In Saturday. Musically, this harkens back to the 1950s. We all saying this, right? It's done up with doo-wop, backing vocals, hand claps, easy rolling shuffle beat, complimentary sax and piano, moving melodic bass and clean guitar licks. But lyrically, it looks ahead to an apocalyptic future. Bowie once said it was 2033 that this takes place. And then after the nuclear war, humankind has forgotten how to have sex due to radiation poisoning. So they watch porn films at the drive-in to learn how to do it again. Yeah, the concept is weird and kind of stupid. But in a post-Ziggy Stardust Bowie universe, it's just the next step in his sci-fi journey. He would continue on with this in Diamond Dogs. Bowie took a train ride from Seattle to Phoenix during the 1972 tour in which he saw the barren landscape, silver domes, and strange lights that inspired him to write this. And he also name-checks Mick Jagger, the model Twiggy, and psychiatrist Carl Jung for good measure. There are synthesizer stabs and swooshes that collide with the oldie-style music, but it all somehow makes sense. And this is another winner. Bowie originally offered this to Mott the Hoople, but Ian Hunter turned it down, causing Bowie to shave his eyebrows in frustration during the Ziggy Stardust tour. This was also the second single from the album that reached number three on the UK singles chart. The next track is Panic in Detroit, written by David Bowie. Lou, let's have it. That riff. Down, 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 down. It's part of what I think about when I hear the name David Bowie. It's it's a throwback to Bo Diddley. I love the descending riff behind the verse, too. That do, 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 do. It's like Helter Skelter, almost. This is more of the Bowie that I like. That raw, snotty, loud, just rock. The congas are a nice touch, especially at the end with the weaving bendy guitars. A plus track. I was so happy to find this uh, on the David Live reissue when it came to CD. And they gave us more of the Tower Theater, the Philly set list uh, from that show that, the you know, it had more than the double album had. 
This is one of the bonus tracks. Great track. Kayla. Um, honestly, I, I mainly like the song because I'm I'm from Metro Detroit, so it's like a cool like shout out because you know, like Detroit. But Detroit um, in the house. Yeah. <laughs> cl- close enough. It's like a half hour away. But you know, we can still say it. Ray Z. Holy shit balls, this song is fucking awesome. And Lou, you nailed it. That's the Bo Diddley style vamp. That dun, 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 which we all know George Michael really irritated. No, I'm totally just kidding. But mm-hmm. um but instead of just like riffing on two chords, there's like an actual like chord progression to it behind it. And there's the layering of the different guitars in this, this intro is pretty fucking tasty too. I don't know really how many tr- tracks of guitars, but I, I definitely think there's more than two. Or maybe it is just two, but they weave in and out of each other pretty nicely. The added percussion is pretty integral part of the song, I think. I always wondered if this is Bowie kind of one-upping T-Rex with like, you know, because they had Mickey Finn as their percussionist. And I know there was kind of always a friendly competition between Bowie and Mark Bowen. And speaking of the drums, um, if you look at to like the two minute, nine second mark, there's a, you can hear like a weird phase effect. And I think it's mostly on how the dr- drums are mic or however the, whatever the track is for the drums. But you can hear it on the drums really openly. And Bowie's vocals kind of go from strained yet compelling on the verse section to really strong on the chorus. So I'm not sure if they just doubled up on the vocal track or if Ken Scott just decided to turn the fader up. But it really comes in prominent in that chorus. And the only other thing I can say about this is this is a great song to have on your headphones as you go for a run. So that's it. That's my Slim Goodbody recommendation for the day. Great track. Mike. I'm just going to repeat everything. I'm going to, I'm going to beat you to the punch Aaron on that one. Um, because it's just, this is a straight up classic song and it's all about the congas and Trevor Boulder's baseline. He is just, he's an animal on this entire album, but his baseline through in this song in particular, I absolutely love. And the, Bo Diddley beat, it's the same thing. How I read that one reviewer referred to it as a salsa variation of the Bo Diddley beat. Now that I read that, I can't I can't unhear that when I listen to it. It's just that it's like a salsa variation, which is pretty cool. Uh, for me, the song's sweet spot, though, is that last minute. The last minute of the song, the vocalisms underneath Mick Ronson's layered squeals. That's just like icing on the cake for me with this song. Okay, now it's time for me to repeat what everybody said. The main rhythm in the tune is a variation of the Bo Diddley beat. I think every single person has said this. With added shaker and conga percussion supplied by Ainsley Dunbar, a cat who played with just about everybody. And a nice walking bass line that brings rhythmic movement to underline the beat. Ronson's guitar switches from the Bo Diddley rhythm to aping the walking bass line and he gets in a noisy dissonant solo to close out the track. It's aces. The lyrics were inspired by Detroit native Iggy Pop's recollections of the 1967 Detroit riots between black citizens and the police and the White Panther Party, specifically their leader, John Sinclair. The lyrics are dark and bleak, and Bowie sings in his upper register to emphasize the panic the main character feels and that the city was under during the riots. And the backing singers wail away, somewhat reminiscent of Mary Clayton on the Stones' Gimme Shelter. It gives the song a dark, spooky vibe that works well. It's yet another terrific track. The following track is Cracked Actor, written by David Bowie. Give me your hand before you stop for this 
Kayla, how about this one? Sex, drugs, rock and roll. And the lyrics were so funny in the song. I was like reading the lyrics today and I just like didn't even catch some of it. Yeah, that's about it. Ray Z. When I think of 70s glam, this is the kind of song that I think of. It's got kind of a loping swing that almost kind of swaggers. The riff itself is fantastic. It's not your typical blues-based guitar riff. I mean, it could be, but I mean, it, they just kind of move it up in like a half step and then they go to a whole step, which makes it really kind of cool. You get some really beautifully minimalistic tambourine playing in the background in there as well. As a, I don't know why I noticed that, but it's like, oh yeah, tambourine. Nice. I guess it was partially inspired by the hookers that Bowie saw in Hollywood when he spent some time out there with Mike Garson. And like these aging Hollywood actors were picking up these runaways and who had just started turning tricks when they moved to fucking Los Angeles thinking they were going to be big stars. As soon as I had read that, all I could think of was like Roddy McDowell, you know? <laughs> 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 or the guy who used to do the uh, the Discover TV show, Peter Grace. Ah, how, how are you doing there? How you like here in the big city? All righty then. <laughs> Would Roddy McDowell be wearing the Planet of the Apes makeup? Hopefully. You know, yeah, definitely. <laughs> Dr. Zayas needs to get some ash. Um, but uh, the chorus is catchy as the chlamydia that the spiders from Mars probably got from one of the local ladies of the evening. I always love vocals delivery during the chorus. <laughs> uh, the song is a sleaze rock hymn that should be treated with the same reverence as any other religious song as far as I'm concerned. So this fucking song is the, tit, <laughs> is the cat's ass. Shay, you guys. <laughs> Mike, what do you think about this one? I think this one's pretty good, Shay. Shay, listen. I'm going to talk to you about Crack Actor by David Bowie, Shay. I'm in on this one, too. Uh, I'm, I'm all in on this song, too. I like the uh, – it's got that amped up harmonica at the beginning, which is pretty sweet, and the uh, like the Mick Ronson shuffle. But again, man, Trevor Boulder for me, he's my hero on this one. And it, it kind of, you know, it was inspired by the Sunset Strip. You could almost picture them there weaving their way, dancing through a crowd, Sunset Strip. That's Trevor Boulder's baseline. He's just kind of trying not to hit the hookers with it. And uh, but <laughs> <laughs> Bowie was, he was just a full-blown cokehead at this point, And he still wrote, produced, and had a cool as shit harmonica solo to fade out on. So I'm, I'm all on board. Lou. Okay, more snotty, distorted guitar, good shuffle rhythm. Bowie's a 50-year-old actor who's fucking hustlers. I mean, what's more to say? You get to scream, suck, baby, suck, while you're in your car making eye contact with the soccer mom across from the parking lot. <laughs> Even better when it's in my earbuds and I'm like walking through the supermarket, not realizing I'm singing along and getting winked at by an old lady through the crowd of horrified parents. <laughs> Another one, it gets played real loud when it comes on. I liked it on David Live, and this is one of the reasons that brought me to get this album. I love it. All I could picture was the secretary from the beginning of uh, Ghostbusters, the one who saw the ghost, like, looking at Lou and just doing, like, the phone gesture with her hand going, call me. <laughs> <laughs> My uncle thought he was St. Jerome. I, I'd say that's a big yes. <laughs> So Bowie took inspiration for this track from staying in Los Angeles on the 72 tour and the people he observed on Sunset Boulevard. This is a dirty, nasty, hard rocker. Ronson's guitar tone is deliberately ugly and abrasive, while Woodman's tambourine, I'm picked up on that too, Ray, it adds a bit of glam to the rhythm. And Bowie blows some grimy harmonica that adds to the sleazy feel. 
Lyrically, it's about a washed-up 50-year-old Hollywood actor soliciting sex workers for their services to make him feel wanted like he's a star again, treating them like they're beneath him all strung out on drugs while all the while he's the most pathetic character in this tale. Despite the sordid subject matter, the chorus hook is still catchy. Crack, baby, crack. Smack, baby, smack. Suck, baby, suck. And once again, Bowie comes up with the goods. So let's flip the imaginary record over and drop the imaginary needle on Time, written by David Bowie. Ray, let's have it. Uh, this may be a long one. Um, this song is fucking fantastic. It's one of the best songs on the album and one of my favorite songs in the, of all time. Uh, there's a great skit from A Bit of Fry and Laurie. I don't know if you guys have ever seen that, like BBC or anything like that, um, where Hugh Laurie plays like a school kid who gets caught quoting this song in a paper or something that he had written to class. And he had explained to the schoolmaster, who's played by Stephen Fry, where it's from, except they're, as, as funny as it is, the Brits don't say Bowie. They call him David Bowie which <laughs> always cracked me the fuck up. Mike Garson, who I'm assuming is playing the piano on this, um, plays like a beautiful, it's a stride style piano. It's kind of that boom chick, boom chick, where they play the lower bass note and then they play the upper notes in the chord up top, um, which I, I guess I read was intentional. But it could easily fit into some cabaret in Berlin, you know? Boys maintained that he always wanted to compose musicals before he became a rock star, and I can see how this would have fed that kind of need. I put my directional signal on here for a little bit. Uh, Johnny Rotten from the Sex Pistols maintained that the Sex Pistols take on punk was informed by this British tradition of having a gathering of people sitting in a parlor with somebody playing piano and everybody singing along to a popular song. And I always kind of wondered if that kind of informed songs like this for him too. As far as lyrics, one of the lines that always stuck with me is uh, uh, time he flexes like a whore, falls wanking to the floor, his trick is you and me. There's a couple different interpretations about that. I mean, Bowie was into mysticism and mythology, and there's the Greek god Kronos, who think that some people think this could be about, and he was all into like the Aleister Crowley sex magic semen as being like a magical substance kind of a thing. So there are some school of thought to say that it could be part of this. I don't really interpret it as that, but I just think it's a really funny image. I think fucking Rano has some great guitar parts on the song. There's some guitar mini parts in the background that almost, I think, I had to look this up. I think it predates Brian May's work in Queen, but it almost seems to be like pointing in that direction. Like I can hear like Brian May as far as like, you know, Bohemian era, Bohemian Rhapsody era stuff on this. And then you get that weird horse winning part at like 213, which is fucking cool. I think that's fucking dope as fuck. And it's like, that's kind of set things up, I think, for Eddie Van Halen Dimebag, you know? He even throws in some like neoclassical style passages with like pedal tone licks. I mean, this could his part probably could have been omitted from this track and it'd still be fantastic. But as per usual, he compliments the song greatly. And the um, ending with the lie, 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 lie. I love that. It just never resolves. It just kind of like leaves you with tension. And I, I, as I think we've established with Buckley and a lot of other albums that I like, I like songs that end with tension and don't resolve. So, yeah, this is a fucking great track. Rockin' Mike.
<laughs> Same here. I love this song too. This song is uh, right up there with this album and probably one of my favorite Bowie tracks of all time. The lyrics, again, I wrote down the same two lines that Ray, that you did in time. He flexes like a whore, falls wanking to the floor. I mean, Bowie is realizing just how fast life is and how time punctuates its passing by taking our friends. There's no escape. He has that nod to um, Billy, the original drummer of the New York Dolls. That's Billy Dolls in the song. And there's that, the song starts with that burlesque style piano from Garson and it ends with more avant-garde jazz, kind of like we heard in Aladdin Sane. Well, I heard the Queen reference too, Ray. Absolutely straight. I, it sounds like Brian May a ton. And I don't think he nicked it either. I just, it, But it works so well in this song. The end, where you talk about how it doesn't resolve, that chorus at the end where they're all singing along, it just gives you the feeling that everybody's in a pub just like mourning the passing of a friend. And it kind of plays into the lyrics. Just love this song. Lou. Doesn't it remind you of the Blazing Saddles number by Madeline Kahn? I'm tired. <laughs> tired of being admired. Sick and tired of love. <laughs> God damn it, I'm exhausted. <laughs> I don't know. It kind of just goes on far too long for me. And uh, at the end, he's like warbling like Ethel Merman. They lie. I love a parade. <laughs> Everything's coming. <laughs> Sorry. All I can picture is her on fucking the Muppet Show, and she was equally as scary as Elton John. <laughs> <laughs> Kayla, what do you think? Honestly, it kind of reminds me of like circus music like it's silly and then like all like the lalas I, I can't sing like that you guys have you guys had it down but that part too makes it like like upbeat and it's just it's just silly i like it makes you laugh like you, everyone's cracking up so <laughs> <laughs> gaston's cabaret style piano leads us off and the piano stays prominent as it strides along just like Ray Z was talking about Ronson adds a guitar many feet. Brian May must have heard. Queen must have heard this shit before they started, right? Wasn't the first Queen album was what, 74, 73, 74? Yeah. So they must have heard this shit. And then a couple of wailing solos that sound discordant but work well against the old-timey feel of the music below it. This track was originally called We Should Be On By Now and was written with different lyrics for Bowie's friend George Underwood. And a demo of it was recorded in mid-71, but it was then rewritten inspired by the death of New York Dolls drummer Billy Mercia. You said that, Rockin' Mike. The lyrics reflect on how everybody falls victim to time. It's inescapable. It's waiting in the wings. It flexes like a whore. It's a sniper. It's quaaludes and red wine. Then it switches to Bowie expressing guilt for not being there for his friend in his time of need. He became dreamless and fell to the darkness while Bowie had so many dreams and breakthroughs. I dig Bowie's melodramatic vocals and the lie, lie, lie with a deep ah backing vocals as the track wraps up. This is experimental and arty and was the third single that apparently did not chart. The next track is The Prettiest Star, written by David Bowie. Prettiest 
Rockin' Mike, what do you say? So, unfortunately, while the song's not a bad song, the song does nothing for me. I would just rather listen to everything before this and after this more than this song. So, it might be the prettiest star, but it's also Mike's unimpressed fluffy fuckery. Lou? The common theme of the tranny burlesque continues. This is more of the same. I heard this is about Angie, his ex-wife. The Rolling Stones, Angel. Nothing really, well, you know, wow-erific here. This is about the most solo you'll hear from Mr. Ronson. I read it was originally played by Mark Bolin, but this is the, um, in this version, the Spider from Mars. Mick Ronson played it like note for note. That's all I got for this one. Kayla. Is this the one with the... Like the hand claps and the, the the saxophone in it? Yeah, it's got hand claps in the back, I think. Okay. Honestly, the hand claps kind of was starting to get annoying, but. <laughs> Ray. Once again, we kind of get a return to the 50s style rock with like, the doo-wop backing vocals. Uh, Ronald, the guitar melody, uh, what I guess is Boland's, it's basically a variation on the vocal melody in the verse section. It's the only deviation from the 50s vibe of the music. Like, the rest of that could have like fit in on like some like, Christ, I don't know, Ricky Nelson song. But then you got the electric guitar over the top of it. And I think it works. I think it's cool. I like how Bowie never hides his British accent in the singing of the song. And it's a great example of that is like Be My Wife from Love. It's like, sometimes you get so lonely, you know? If you didn't know that the bands from the British Invasion were from England, you could almost say that they sounded American. But he doesn't go try to do that. He, David isn't playing on that. It's fun. It's, you know, kind of confectionary. But you know, it's not the greatest track. But I, I enjoy it. So this was originally a single in 1970 to follow up the hit Space Oddity single, and that version has Mark Bolin of T-Rex on guitar and did absolutely nothing on the charts. This version slightly sped up, it's got doo-wop backing vocals and hand claps, and is far denser with the 50s Fats Domino-style piano making its presence felt. Ronson plays almost the exact guitar lines that Bolin did. Yeah, I listened to both tracks. And there's a sax line played by David Sanborn that echoes the vocal melody, taking over from Ronson's guitar. Lyrically, it's a love song written for Bowie's first wife, Angela Barnett, whom he married not long after the original single's release. She was his prettiest star. And he sings it with appropriate tenderness. But this track kind of feels out of place on a record full of darker material. It's not awful, but this one I can take or leave. It's funny. Have you ever read about their relationship, the horror stories involved with it? A, a little bit, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. I read this one story where it was like he wanted to go out in the, the town for the night, and she protested, and she like threw herself down the stairs. <laughs> oh and I God. guess and, – and then Bowie like stepped over, and he said, well, if you're not dead in a few hours, call me. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't she supposedly catch uh, Bowie and Jagger in bed? I heard that too, yeah. Yeah, I heard, I heard that too. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I read today that uh, she said that after he divorced her, she never spoke another word with him again. He would never speak to her again. It was always through lawyers. Hmm. The following track is Let's Spend the Night Together, written by Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. Well, don't you worry about 
like this one, Lou? It sounds like the way Iggy and the Stooges would have done it, I think. The off-key piano is, is a little irritating. If you're going to bang on the thing, at least bang on it in key. Not a hard rule. I think the Stones did it better. There's less tension here, and he's not as predatory as Mick kind of comes across in their version. It doesn't suck, uh, but it doesn't belong on this album. It belongs on pinups. Kayla? This one's my favorite song on the record. <laughs> <laughs> right on, sick. Oh, it's not yeah. a bad song. No, it's it's no, just that I I, I think it doesn't fit in on this album. Yeah, I like I like his version better than the Stones because I confused who who covered what, and I had to look it up today because I cu- I couldn't even remember. But uh, this line makes me want to like break shit or run, but I like it. <laughs> <laughs> nice, Ray Z. You know, as much as I love the Stones. This song in particular has never been a particular like a favorite of mine, and I was kind of confused as why he chose to cover it at first. Uh, this version kind of reminds me of like when Ike and Tina Turner covered uh, "Proud Mary" and its frenetic pace, and it's definitely a rockier version. Unlike Lou, I dig the piano <laughs> intro. <laughs> just because it, it just makes things look a little bit different. Um, but but uh, like Lou, I agree. This should have been put on pinups. And I probably would have been okay with it being on that album instead of this one. It's fun and confectionary, but I think it's ultimately forgettable. And I don't hate it, but I got to have one, kind of like you say, Aaron. So I'm going to say this is Ray's Unimpressed Musical Pick. Mike. (laughs) So I am on Team Kayla and Ray. And that's only because of Lou's review of Seven Son of Seven Son. No, um, the. uh... I haven't listened to that one yet. Uh, I actually, I really do. I love this version. I like the kind of the sci-fi jazzy opening, weird interpretations. The uh, Bowie's vocal phrasing on this, I think he's trying to be deliberately stiff on the way he 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 does some of it because some of his deliveries, anything that ends in an R, sometimes it's open and he's from Southie, and other times he hits the hard R. He goes a little bit back and forth. But I like Garson's piano on this too. The way he weaves in and out from doing like spot on you know, cover of certain sections back to like this free form interpretation. Um, at time boulders bass sounds like a tarp flapping in the wind. There's really, <laughs> it's there. It's, it's really high in the mix and it's a weird little like flick. And anybody who's, you know, had a wood pile outside in November, when the wind picks up, you hear that tarp, that's boulders bass for me on, on this one. The song winds out with spoken word and dissonant piano before returning for one last chorus, but I really do like it as a cover. Um, fuck you all. This is Bowie's take on a Rolling Stones classic cut from 1967, and it sucks ass. What? Oh, it's faster, glamier, and harder rocking with spacey synth stabs throughout it. Very modern at the time, but it completely misses the horned up sense of the original by a country mile. Gaston's clanging piano doesn't even approach the rollicking groove of Jack Nietzsche's original piano part, and the wordless backing vocal hook that's so key to the original, it's completely absent from this. The vocal melody itself in the chorus is completely sandpapered down to a smooth, flat sheen. The chorus goes from, let's spend the night together, to, let's spend the night together! No, no, no! This is Aaron Stinky Stinker. Did the professor put you up to that? I'm sorry, Kayla. <laughs> Man, that <really> sucked. <laughs> <laughs> 
The penultimate track is The Gene Genie, written by David Bowie. Scratching the sand, let go his hands. He says he's a beautician, sells you nutrition, keeps all your dead hair for making up underwear. Poor little greenie. Kaylee, you must like this one. Everyone knows this one. But yes, I do like this song, too. Ray Z. I'm almost embarrassed to admit this, but the first time I heard this song was actually a version sung by Scott Weiland with his solo band. Um, as I said before, I was late to the Bowie game. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. I mean, I still think the Weiland version's okay, but it's not nearly as good as the original. Start out with this great riff in the verse section. It's kind of like a variation of the I'm a Man riff by Muddy Waters. And the overall groove has so much attitude and swagger. It's just like really thick and awesome. The chorus is absolute perfection with shout along vocals for the Gene Genie part. The harp playing in the background kind of adds grit to the overall song. Uh, Rano's solo goes between sitar-like slinkiness and blues rock licks. I always kind of wondered if he co- ever covered over under sideways down by the Yardbirds at some point because the guitar lick always reminds me of something that that song was played like. Um, if you listen to like his... Um, lead break in and not his lead break but during like the chorus section of black country rock you can kind of hear that weird kind of slithery sitar like piece so um no this fucking song is a burner man rock and mike I'm a, i literally the first sentence i wrote is what kayla said it's the one bowie song everybody knows so uh, mick ronson is great with a gland another glammed up r&b riff boulder holds back a little bit on this one and stays in the pocket i love it how um he plays the melody of the song under the solo. He's another unsung hero of mine on this record. Bowie's upbeat and infectious sing-along chorus, the hand claps. It probably the fastest four minutes on the record as it builds to a cold end and a perfect example of 70s glam. Lou. This is the other reason to get this record. I've blown more speakers to this song than I'd care to admit. And I don't mean in Toastmasters. Bowie's one of those aliens like Prince, you know, or like the sun god Ra from Stargate. You know, they're the little scrawny guys, you know, that look human. But, you know, with one look, his eyes kind of light up and you're a sex slave in a trance. (laughs) (laughs) Only to wake up the next morning alone with crusty underwear and a headache and a lingering feeling. (laughs) Seek antibiotics and a strong laxative. Hey, did I just take a big greasy shit last night? Yeah, you did, man. You totally did. You got up in the middle of the night. You were like so drunk and you just like unleashed some bull graffiti, man. It was it was heartbreaking. We all felt bad for you. Oh, well, I feel better about that. Thanks, guys. It was no very window. Amber Heard of you. <laughs> <laughs> the tension release in this song is just great. I, I don't know who he's talking about, Gene, Genie, but whoever it is, I bet that fucker fucks. Uh, <laughs> I don't understand the online hate for this song. It was a mega hit, but, you know, maybe they were just sick of it. it it's an essential track. End of story. I mean, like... <laughs> <laughs> Do you think Iggy Pop influenced it at all? Like, who, like this is overall... Funny you should mention that. <clears throat> Holy shitballs, Batman, did I need this. 
This track almost single-handedly saved side two for me on this record. It's a raucous, bluesy stomp. It started out being called Bussin' as it came out of a jam on the tour bus when Ronson wrote the riff on his new, brand new Les Paul that he got. Bowie finished the song in New York in Autumn 72 while spending time with Serinda Fox, a member of Andy Warhol's menagerie and later wife of both David Johansson of the New York Dolls and Steven Tyler of Aerosmith. She's uh, Mia Tyler's mother. The rhythm in the verses stomps along, and in the catchy chorus, the bass gains cool melodic movement with added hand claps, all the while there's subtle harmonica licks played by Bowie that keep the tune rooted in the blues. The character of the Gene Genie was indeed inspired by Iggy Pop. He lives on his back, strung out on lasers and slashback blazers, walking on Snow White, well weren't they all, prowling the streets of New York, sitting like a man but smiling like a reptile, loves to be loved for a short while. Pretty accurate description of Mr. Osterberg. He's outrageous. Ronson plays some sweet tremolo pick fills all over the place, and this is a kick-ass track. The one song I knew from this album, well, everybody knew, right, when we got it. It's a well-known Bowie staple, the first song written for the album, and it was also the first single that reached number two on the UK singles chart and number 71 on the US Billboard Hot 100 chart. And that brings us to the final track, Lady Grinning Soul, written by David Bowie. Sweet with musky oil, the lady from another grinning soul. How about this last one, Ray Z? This song is just another wicked showcase of Mike Garson's abilities. I mean, the intro is super dramatic and has almost like a Spanish bullfight kind of a feel. And Bowie himself on this has a beautiful, beautiful vocal delivery. He doesn't lose any power when he goes into his higher register of falsetto. It still sounds dark and rich. And then Garson's piano kind of sounds like a waterfall in the background with these cascading notes during the verse section. Rono plays some gorgeous acoustic guitar passages. I think he was able to compliment Garson's piano uh, quite nicely. And the same goes for his electric work at the end of the song. I feel like both those two musicians played well off of each other. It's an oddly subdued way to go out on an album like this. I mean, I've read that before, that Bowie would pick a track to end his albums that would often point the listener in the direction of what he would go to in his next album. I think pinups came after this, so I don't think that really see that. But I can see a song like this would kind of point to a, the direction of a song like Sweet Thing or The Candidate. And actually, as far as like album enders go, but if, between this and um, Hunky Dory, I kind of prefer this to the Boulay Brothers. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a great way to end the album. Rock and Mike. This is just an underrated Bowie tune. Um, even though I've had I've had it on CD for a while, I've always just kind of glanced past this track until prepping this week, and I completely missed the boat on this, and I've been kicking myself in the ass. It's just a hauntingly beautiful way to end the Spiders from Mars because they, you know, as we know, they after this album, they were disbanded, and uh, Ronson knew it at the end of the tour, and Boulder and uh, the drummer Woody he, they weren't really sure. I love the bass in this as well. At this point, I should just be on Boulder's payroll. I just love <laughs> listening to the guy play. <laughs> and I didn't know till this week that he was in Uriah Heep. So um, oh. I now got to go listen to a bunch of Uriah Heep to kind of <laughs> to kind of see what he does with that. 
and Bowie must have liked this song as well because it actually appeared as the B-side to four different singles by Bowie. Whoa. So this was the B-side to Let's Spend the Night Together, the B-side to Sorrow, the B-side to Rebel Rebel, and the B-side to 1984, hmm. which is amazing to me that somebody would use the same B-side. A band that I always loved, Motley Crue, they would do that, but that was only because they didn't have a well to pull from to, to, to do that like <laughs> Bowie did. Um, but, the you know, um, I just I wish the song was longer. Um, I, I like the flamenco guitar uh, playing along and uh, with the piano and i think that's a nice touch and it's a great way to end the record lou am i the only one that can't get frankenfurter out of his head when he's listening to this <laughs> i guess so well not the me. whole record has just been a fucking prototype for rocky horror i i hope he got royalties um <laughs> I can picture Bowie in my head singing this with like clumps of glitter and confetti falling from the ceiling and getting stuck in his lips and eyes. And, and it, he's got to, you know, he's got to go, <laughs> you know, to <laughs> you know, get caught his eyelids like glitter and confetti bukkake. <laughs> it's just saying glitter bukkake. <laughs> It's a fitting closer. It is. And a wave goodbye, you know, blowing kisses. Bye, Boeing. Mwah. Bye. <laughs> Bye, Aladdin. Farewell. <laughs> goodbye. <laughs> Have fun storming the castle. <laughs> <laughs> Kayla. You guys are funny. Uh, you guys pretty much, like, you pretty much said everything. Honestly, it's just. It's it's hauntingly beautiful. It's I'd say it's my second favorite. So you guys is least favorite song on the on the record. It's good. It's a good way to close it. I I like it. I like how it ends. So this features Garson's. I I wrote this down too. Cascading Latin influenced piano, along with Ronson's flamenco styled guitar and Boulder playing higher notes on the bass on a track that has an air of mystery. It comes across like a theme from a non-existent James Bond film. Ronson gets a nice big note-crying solo towards the end of the track, along with Ken Fordham's saxophone that stays in the background but pushes the cinematic vibe of the tune. The inspiration for this song was American soul singer Claudia Lanier, who was once a member of Ike and Tina Turner's Ikeettes, and Bowie sings about his muse with a mixture of awe and trepidation, rising up into his falsetto in the choruses. The lady will come and go, sweet with musky odor. Her body and her caresses will be your living end. This is a cool closing track. It touches on the rock, jazz, and avant-garde elements that are the major hallmarks of the record. Now that the track-by-track track is completed, we'll give our final thoughts and album ratings. For you new listeners, the rating is a 0-5 to five system, with 5 being a favorite album of ours, all the way down to a 0, which is a victim of an insane lad. Kayla, what are your final thoughts on Aladdin Sane? I'm still having a hard time deciding how I want to rate it. It's just... <laughs> I don't have anything bad to say about, about it. It's a classic Bowie album. If you want to get to know Bowie, it's a great way to start. And just feel like once you start, you're going to have a hard time stopping. So I would rate a 4.5 because I love them all. I can't, they're all perfect, but you know. All right. Ray Z. Um, first off, I just want to say, Kayla, thank you for picking this album because um, this is one of my favorites of all time, actually, especially from the Bowie catalog. So you get big props on that one. 
Um, oh, you're goes so without, welcome. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm gonna. I think it goes out to saying at this point. Um, that I think this is a fantastic album. I mean, you've got a great eclectic mix of glam rock, blues, classic '50s rock and roll, avant-garde free jazz, and vaudeville, all wrapped up into one package. I mean, the Spiders of Mars band was. Great, but it was made that much better by the addition of Mike Garson. And Bowie's singing was always fantastic. Even when he wasn't really going for it, he could do the Lou Reed-style nasal narration, the crooning, the rock screaming, or even like the delicate and damaged-sounding vocal. He had eclectic taste, and his varying vocal styles reflected it without betraying about who he was as an artist. I think somebody touched upon that, or maybe it was Mike, but it's like his fingerprint was on it. Well, no matter what he did, it was the undeniable aspect of Bowie is who he was as an artist was always there. So I said this album for me is a five, and it's one of the ones I definitely want to be stranded on an island with. So that's my view from the couch. <laughs> Rock and Mike. So I'm with Kayla. I'm giving it a four and a half. I love this record. And the thing is, is you think about it, like how do you follow up an album like Ziggy Stardust? I Ziggy Stardust is one of my favorite records of all time. And he follows it up with this. And you think about it, he released three albums from December of 71 to April of 73, Hunky Dory, Ziggy Stardust, and Aladdin Sane. Like, that's that blows my mind when you think about it. And he did the whole thing on a fucking container ship full of Coke. And I don't understand <laughs> how he, like, it, it blows my mind. I really do love this album. Um, and I, I kicked myself in the ass for being later to the Bowie party. I wish I got into him earlier. But yeah, me this too. is definitely a, a four and a half for me. Lou. The songs that I like on this record, uh, I like because I heard them on David Live for the most part. Uh, this one truly reminds me of an evening in a burlesque theater uh, where different like female impersonators would come out and do their thing. You know, one share. My father made a pure Cherokee. <laughs> Diana Ross comes out. Set me free. Why don't you be one? You know, little Bo Peep comes out. You get the picture. <laughs> I can picture it's the birdcage. <laughs> right. <laughs> she works hard for the money. <laughs> so hard for her honey. <laughs> I never wear shoes. They make me fall down. Bowie's all about the freaks and weirdos Uh, It's cool to be different Now you want to be too It's like that old saying from the interwebs I'm not sure who wrote it But I'm going to steal it for you guys When in doubt, listen to David Bowie In 1968, Bowie was a gay, ginger, bonk-eyed, snaggletoothed freak Walking around South London wearing a dress Being spit on and hassled by people Five years later, he was still exactly that. But now everyone else wanted to be just like him. If David Bowie can make being David Bowie cool, then you can make being you cool. Plus, unlike David Bowie, you get to listen to David Bowie for inspiration. So you're one up on him, really. You're already ahead of David Bowie. What a fucking world we live in. I'm going to give this a three and a half. Well, 3.75. I'm a cranky asshole. I like this, but... (laughs) Diamond Dogs and Young Americans are better to me. Is it clearly a good album? Yeah. Um, Should any Bowie fan have this? Yeah. Should any general fan of rock music give this a listen? Probably. Yeah. Yeah. Do I feel any impact from this album once I'm done with it? 
uh, apart from a few songs, not really. So do I have an, anything resembling in an, an Aladdin sane mood? I, I don't have it, but I'll give it a three and three quarters. By late 1972, the album The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars and the tour to support it turned David Bowie into a star. The added pressure of the newfound fame took a toll on Bowie's mental health and he developed a longtime cocaine addiction to combat exhaustion while touring. And it was while on the road in America that Bowie's perceptions of the country, both positive and negative, began to influence the bulk of the new songs he was composing for his next album. Not wanting to repeat himself and create Ziggy Stardust Part 2, Bowie's new songs would incorporate a wider variety of musical influences and veer off into jazz and avant-garde territory, which took shape with the addition of jazz pianist Mike Garson to his regular backing band The Spiders from Mars. The album was recorded from December 72 to January 1973, between legs of the Ziggy Stardust tour, and Bowie decided to create a new persona to replace Ziggy, Aladdin Sane, a pun on a lad insane, which was, as Bowie described, Ziggy Goes to America, a less defined schizoid personality that was reflected in the more experimental music featured on the album. The iconic album cover was a photo shot by English photographer Brian Duffy, which depicted a shirtless Bowie with red hair, a red and blue lightning bolt painted down his face to symbolize his split feelings about America and touring, and a teardrop pooled on his collarbone, airbrushed by Philip Castle to give Bowie's body a silvery sheen. When it was released, Aladdin Sane was generally well-received by fans and critics, became one of his best-selling albums, and over time has come to be known as one of Bowie's essential records. For me, I feel it's a worthy follow-up to the Ziggy Stardust album, but it sounds more rushed, more unfocused. The strain that Bowie was under at the time comes through on some of these tracks. He was under a lot of pressure. He was had his fingers in a lot of different pies at the time. This really is the start of Bowie experimenting with his sound, as this music does have elements of stonesy balls-out rock, but also features the jazz and avant-garde influences that expand the boundaries of what Bowie had done before and point the way to where he'd go in the future. There's a lack of cohesion to the album due to the circumstances under which it was created, and it dips at the beginning of Side 2 for me for a couple of tracks. But Bowie is still in fine voice, and his lyrics are interesting and provocative as each track reflects the vibe of the place where it was created, be it a specific city or even a ship on which he sailed from America back to the UK. I give Aladdin Sane a three and a half. It just missed a four. And yeah, for me, it's not as good as Siggy Stardust. But any serious Bowie fan needs to have this in their collection. That's a given. Now we'd like to thank Patreon legend Kayla Helsel for picking this album and coming on to talk Bowie with us. Thanks so much for supporting the podcast. I'm getting hand claps. Okay, applause. <laughs> but thank you very much, Kayla, so much. Yeah, great pick. Thanks, for having thanks me. Brig, great pick. Yeah, thank thanks you, for picking th this for sure. And thank, and thank you for putting up with the testosterone fest that this was. <laughs> yes. guess, uh, you thank you for putting up with me in time. particular. You're so funny. You're all silly. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything you want to plug or promote or tell the listeners about? Honestly, no, but I I tell like my friends and family about your guys' podcast. I'm always talking about it. Oh, I so. appreciate thanks that. Thanks a lot. Thank you I so much. I don't have anything to promote, but I I try to promote you guys. Just word of mouth. 
Appreciate that. You're the goods. (laughs) And that's going to do it for this episode. You can find this podcast on all the podcasting platforms wherever you listen to them. If you like what you hear, please subscribe or follow the podcast and leave us a review. If you'd like to contact us directly, we can be reached at RidiculousRockRecords at gmail.com or also on the Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews Facebook page, where there's a link to hear each podcast. We're also on Twitter at R4PodcastAaron and Instagram under R4Podcaster. If you feel the podcast has value and would like to make a contribution to support it, please head over to Patreon and the Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews page and sign up on one of the monthly tiers. Feel free to leave all of your feedback, comments, reviews, and or suggestions at any of those places I just described. We'd love to hear from you. So for the R4 Podcast, I'm Aaron. I'm Ray. I'm Mike. And I'm a cranky asshole. See ya. (laughs) Listen, see, you and me, we gotta talk, see? (laughs) (laughs) Let's spend the night together! I saw a clip of uh, Danza getting knocked the fuck out by somebody backstage. Oh, yeah. Uh, That's fucking funny as fuck, dude. (laughs) (laughs) He he turned his lights out. Somebody made made a comic, and it was uh, Danzig and Henry Rollins, and they're like a couple. (laughs) (laughs) I have to find a link to it. It's pretty funny. (laughs) Kayla? Yeah, I think I got it. Can you guys hear me? Oh, yes. Clear. Okay. Hi. Welcome. <laughs> Hi. So I'm trying to say if I want my dog in here, and I, sometimes he barks. I know your guys' dogs bark sometimes too, but my kids bark. We're dog, dog friendly. We're a dog friendly. Your kids bark. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's fine. Okay, he's good. We're a dog friendly yeah. podcast. Yeah, my, I, I made my picture of my dog actually. I'm sure yeah, Buster uh, Rockchewini will show up at some point. Yes. <laughs> My dog's at my feet right now. It sounds like they let us. What the fuck did I write there? <laughs> <laughs> you would be the first person to do that, Aaron. We've all done that, man. Holy shit. I, I, I literally can't understand what I wrote here. <laughs>